This week on Up in the Blue Seats, Brett Sergalis wrote a great story in the New York Post that is out now on my old teammate Mark Pavlich, who is currently in a treatment facility. We chat with him about the story. My old Rangers teammate and friend Eddie Meal also joins us on the show. All that and more next on Up in the Blue Seats from the New York Post. Welcome to Up in the Blue Seats Podcast, a New York Rangers podcast from the New York Post. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. Rate the show five stars and write a nice review if you're using Apple. New episodes are released Wednesdays. Ron is joined this week by Brett Sergalis to talk about his story on Mark Pavlich in the New York Post. He's also joined by one of his old teammates with the Rangers, Eddie Mio. Speaking of Ron, here he is, the star of the show, number 10, Ron Duguay. Hi, everyone. I'm uh, really looking forward to the show today. It's We're going to go in a different direction uh, in talking about players uh, and player issues. One of them that comes to mind is a teammate of mine. That's Mark Pavlich. He's been having issues for the last couple of years, ended up in jail. And uh, the beat writer for the New York Post, Brett, decided he wanted to do a follow-up story to see where he was at. So we're going to heal all that today. We're going to get some good, insightful stuff. So I'm looking forward to that. On the lighter side, a good friend of mine who was a teammate in New York, is Eddie Mio. Eddie and I played together in New York, and then we got traded together. We ended up in Edmonton, but while in New York, we had a whole bunch of fun. But before all that, Eddie came in from Edmonton. He was a teammate of Wayne Gretzky, also a roommate of Wayne Gretzky. So I'm anxious to ask him what it was like to be there when Wayne Gretzky, the young rookie Wayne Gretzky, ended up showing up in Edmonton, which was the WHA back then, and then the Edmonton Oilers of the NHL. So he's going to walk Walk us through all that. I'm going to ask him all these questions to get some good insight. And by the way, he was his best man at his wedding, Wayne Gretzky's wedding. So a lot of good stuff coming up. I'm looking forward to it. Joining us now is Rangers beat writer for the New York Post, Brett Sergalis. Follow Brett on Twitter at Brett Sergalis. He has a story out this week in the New York Post at NewYorkPost.com on Mark Pavlich. So, Brett, how did you uh, decide to uh, get onto this story on Mark Pavlich? Yeah, Ron, it's, uh, you know, I found it because... You know, obviously, people know who who Mark Pavlich was. Member of the eighty Olympic team, uh, member of the Rangers with you, and so uh, start looking online. You know, Barry Beck, um, who's also on those teams, has been posting on Facebook about a lot about Mark and his situation, which not a lot of people knew previous to Barry posting about it. And and Mark is actually in a a mental in incarceration facility in Minnesota because he assaulted a neighbor with a metal pipe and really hurt him and he was deemed mentally unfit to stand trial uh, so now he kind of the, the hearings keep getting pushed back and it seems like it's going to get pushed back again because of the coronavirus you know so the story is really well, well what happened to Mark Pavlich he kind of had this idyllic 
childhood growing up in, in rural Minnesota and, and hunting and fishing. And, and you know, me, you know, went to uh, University of Minnesota Duluth and then played for Herb Brooks and the Olympic team, you know, the Miracle on Ice, they beat the Russians. And then, you know, a couple of days later, Herb's coaching the, uh, the Rangers and he brings Mark in and he plays for years on, on Broadway. And he was still this quiet guy from Minnesota. But, you know, how did he get to this point where he almost became where he's mentally unstable? So when you start looking back through his life, that's what I I wanted to do. I wanted to find out how he got there. So you start looking back through his life, and he kind of has this this history of tragedy that I I don't want to get into now because I want people to read it in the uh, in the paper and on the website and and read it for themselves. But it's it's a fascinating story, and it's really about how you know sometimes life can pile up on you, and and mental illness is is something that should be taken seriously, and and maybe people are predisposed to it, maybe they're not, maybe just life circumstances kind of come along and make somebody crack you know like what just what happens when you have this quiet guy who cracked just why and can it happen to anybody if it does happen then what do you do and there's a tie-in too to, to the nhl now and and former players and you know the the uh, forbidden word that nobody wants to say uh cte you know the repercussions of having a ton of concussions and head injuries you know the, the lawsuit that the league has had to deal with and commissioner gary bettman saying he doesn't believe there's necessarily correlation between concussions and CTE and fallout from all of that you know that that's part of this story too and all of the former players that have suffered after uh, dealing with head injuries so you know there's a lot that goes into it it's a human story it's a personal story it's a story about hockey so you know Ron you you knew Pav uh, relatively well or, or somewhat during your playing days I mean you know he was uh, he was a pretty quiet guy right and and you didn't see anything like this coming no the, the year that Herbie comes in he brings in Mark, as you said, and I had just come off playing in the world championship. I was playing in the Canada Cup. So I show up in training camp. I had missed most of training camp and the season's about to start. And I have a quick meeting with Herb and he says, listen, I'm going to give you this kid, Mark Pavlich. And essentially we had a uh, quick conversation on who Mark was. And a lot of it was the kid's quiet, but he can play. And I think he's going to be very suited to your type of game. You like to play a speed game. Mark likes to play fast. He doesn't like to dump and chase. He likes to control the puck. And I said, great. So so now I have a conversation with Pav and there wasn't a whole lot of conversation uh, because he was so quiet. And the way he spoke was him playing the game. And so, and it wasn't like I was a big talker back then because all I wanted to do is play. And like even uh, during periods, both Mark and I would sit next to each other in the dressing room and not a whole lot was said. And so we just went out and our language was hockey. And so we played and that first year scored 40 goals at Mark. And so we had a great season. I knew that um, who he was as a player, as far as his compete level, he had a strong compete level. Like the little guy would go in the corners like he was uh, six foot three, 200 pounds. Like he competed hard. And uh, we just had this connection that was a little bit different without words. And so occasionally Mark would come to me and he'd talk to me, say, Dukes, uh, I got some friends from out of town from Minnesota. Do you mind sitting down and have a beer with us? And I said, no, absolutely. And so that would be the extent that we would actually spend time together. Uh, it wasn't a guy that would follow me to Studio 54. He's a little guy that just wanted to go to the pub, quietly go to the pub and have a couple beers. And that's that was his happy happy place. I uh, And when we traveled, being on the road, he wasn't the one, he wasn't the most colorful guy. He kept things very plain, very simple. And so I liked him because we got along so, so well 
well in a quiet way. And and this is one of the things I find so fascinating about hockey is that you can have two guys who are so personally different, like you and Pavs. And when you get on the ice, there's there's some sort of connection. And it's like it's one of the most fascinating things, especially at that level, to watch for me as a, as a you know as a reporter is just to see and someone an observer of the game is to see how how chemistry develops. You know, and you said you know the way Mark used to go in the corners and reporting the story i talked to a lot of people you know michael ruzioni being one of them and guys that have played with him and they all kind of said the same thing he was fearless you know he used to go in the corners and do that and nobody really remembers any giant hits him really like getting crushed and and maybe it happened but he you know he played through everything because he was this small guy and he was he was so gutsy that he would just do what was ever needed of him and how that fits into hockey culture and how that fits into like you know molding with a different personality i find to be just one of the most fascinating parts of hockey and one of the most fascinating parts of the story. Well, I, I like to add to that when there was no real evidence of him getting hit, I could tell you that often the whistle would go and he'd be picking his helmet off the ice. And so what would happen, he'd go in the corners because as a little guy, the bigger guys would give him the elbow to the head and often he would lose his helmet, ended up on the ice. And now whether that was an accumulation of, of getting hit and possible uh, imbalance in his brain, I don't know. But often I would see him just pick it up with his helmet. He wouldn't stay down. He'd get up. He wouldn't say a word and he'd just keep playing. And he was just a tough kid. So uh, a follow-up question to you and and uh, I guess I, without giving up the story, who are some of the people that you end up talking to? Did you talk to Barry Beck? Because I know he's been a big voice for him. I know he has a sister. Did you get a chance to speak to his sister? Yeah, I spent I spent a long time on the phone with Barry Beck, who who's been uh, coaching hockey in Hong Kong, and he you know he he's become very friendly with Mark and is the biggest, probably his biggest, most vocal proponent um, of his case. And, you know, they have some grand plans for uh, whenever Mark comes out trying to help players into the future and and yeah I, t I spoke to his sister um you know their family has i don't know exactly the right way to describe it but they have this very difficult family life that kind of happened all of these these things happened to their family um and including to mark and they've kind of all gotten through it together you know and and i've spoken to a bunch of his childhood friends and people later in his life as well just to get a picture of him you know and and another thing about you know the hockey aspect is that you know on the ice he's this fearless guy who will do anything and then off the ice he's just you know, everyone you talk to is said he's just the nicest guy in the world. You know, he'd give you the shirt off his back. And yeah, maybe he didn't want to take part in the big celebrations for the 80 team or, you know, he wasn't, you know, trudging out to Studio 54 with you. But but he was he was super nice and he he really just wanted to be with his friends and be kind of in his own world. And, you know, if anyone asked anything of him, he kind of gave it how that melds with, you know, an on ice mentality and, and made him the player that he was is is another interesting aspect to it uh, and kind of how how hockey is, you know, once you're on the ice is a little bit different than the way everyone is off the ice and how that can kind of bring people together in that respect as well. Well, we, uh, I, uh, being his teammate, uh, I appreciate you putting the effort into telling this story and supporting story. And I'll be talking to Barry Beck. You know, when I think about Barry Beck, he was our captain. I guess once a captain, always a captain. He's looking out for uh, young Mark. So thanks for the story and we'll talk later. Great. Thanks, Rob.
My guest today, a friend, played seven years in NHL, started in Edmonton with Wayne Gretzky, ended up with the New York Rangers, where he played with myself, very back, Mark Pavlich, and because we're discussing Mark Pavlich today, Eddie Mio is on the show, who's going to help me in talking about what he saw in Mark Pavlich and what's happening with Mark Pavlich. Now, Eddie, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Ronnie. How you doing, buddy? Been a while. So what's what's it like for you? What's your lifestyle like for you right now? What What is it? that you're what's keeping you busy other than getting old (laughs) (laughs) i uh i went back into uh the agent business after i left wayne uh, gretzky wines i got back in uh, just started a small boutique-ish style representing some young kids right now in the ohl and college and uh i got a couple kids on the development team but that's been taking a lot of my time i also consult for a vodka company which is based right here in ferndale michigan which was voted uh two years running best vodka in the world out of london england so i've been keeping busy i, I you know me dukes i just try and do whatever whatever opportunity comes around you know i take it i mean with all the contacts you and i have made and a lot of the guys that we played with, you know, I'm starting now instead of passing them on, starting to use them. So I've been busy. I, I dab on a little bit of the automotive, and so I've uh, my life is full. Ron, I will say he need, he needs to send us a couple of bottles of vodka. I know you're a vodka guy, <laughs> and I'm a vodka guy. So Eddie, we'll we'll take a few bottles. We're in we're in New York. We are in uh, the Valentine is in New York. Uh, we're in about eight, uh, but I'll uh, I'll arrange next trip up there. Make sure Ron and you. You know, hook up with me and uh, we'll have a good, uh, probably a good vodka buzz. <laughs> this stuff is good. You got drafted in the NHL. You got drafted by Chicago in the NHL. Then you got drafted by Vancouver in the WHA. Tell us about your decision because you ended up uh, in Indianapolis where Wayne Gretzky was and then ended up in Edmonton with Wayne Gretzky. So I guess what I'm interested in and the listeners would be interested in, what was it like to be there when Wayne Gretzky and Mark Messier and ended up on the Edmonton team in the A and the WHA. What was that like? Well, first of all, I'm going to clarify things. I was the main guy in the deal, okay? I was the guy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is a good... The reason I went to the WHA, obviously, Chicago at that time had Tony Esposito, okay? And they had two goaltenders, uh, Mike Weiser and Michel Dumas, who I think you played against in your first year. And one guy, Dumas and, and Visor, they alternate playing in Dallas in the CHL, which was their major farm team. And the other guy would back up Tony. But if you look at his stats back then, Tony played almost every game. Okay. So, and he was still a young guy. So I didn't see the future there. So I decided to sign. Uh, I didn't sign right away with Vancouver. I went back to school, graduated was All-American in my last two years and decided to sign with, at that time, Calgary. uh, Vancouver had folded and moved to Calgary. So I signed with Calgary. If you know the history of WHA, every year there was teams folding, okay? Calgary folded after my first year, and I ended up in Birmingham. And Birmingham loaned me out to Indianapolis. So I finished out my second year in Indianapolis. Then they they completed a trade for me to stay in Indianapolis, and that was in 78 when we signed this scrawny little kid named Wayne Gretzky. And you got to remember, I I wasn't a big sporting news or hockey news guy back then, so I really didn't know who Wayne Gretzky really was other than he was a pretty good hockey player in Sault Ste. Marie played in the world juniors and I, I kind of watched, but 
up to that point, I didn't know, but everybody was just talking about how great he was. We ended up in, in, in Indianapolis, and what happened was me and a, and the third member of the, the trade, Peter Driscoll, we had a house in Carmel, Indiana, and Pat Stapleton was our our coach and you know god bless him he just passed away but uh he was our gm and coach and he called us up he knew we stayed in in uh in the area most of the summer and uh he said listen there's this kid we just signed wayne gretzky and uh i'd like you guys to take care of he's moving in with a family and uh the family that, uh, you know, is a doctor and very well to do, but they're in your area. So can you check on them? Well, they started high school early in August. So me and Peter would take care of them, you know, take a look on Friday nights. We would drive around the steak and shake. And that's where Wayne was holding court with his kids. And we just drive around the parking lot, make sure he was okay. We even lent them the house once in a while to have his high school parties. So we became pretty close and ironically, or whatever you want to say, fate that November, after practice, uh, Pat Stapleton called the three of us into the office and said, uh, go on back home, pack your clothes, grab your equipment, and be at the airport by 2 o'clock. You guys are being traded. At that point, I said, well, where are we going? And uh, Whitey said, uh, we don't know yet. It's between Edmonton and Winnipeg. And whoever has 250000 in the bank by 2 o'clock, that's when you're taking off. So be at the airport. So we got to the airport and grabbed as much clothes as we got. And all we knew, we were going to the cold. So we brought a lot of winter stuff. We were waiting around, waiting around, and now all of a sudden it's getting around four o'clock, and and there's still no answer. And then Whitey got a phone call and said, "Hey, put him on the plane, have him go to Minneapolis." So we got on the plane, we took off. The pilot door opened up, and he looked back and he says, "Okay, guys, who's paying for this flight?" We had a little Learjet back then. You could hardly fit in there with our sticks and equipment. We had no undercarriage, so we were all kind of okay. Well, uh, what do you mean? Wherever we're going is going to pay for this. Flight. And the pilot said, no, somebody's got to pay for it or else we're turning around and landing. So I looked at Peter Driscoll and I said, uh, hey, Peter, uh, what are we going to do? I don't know, Eddie. I said, do you take credit cards to the pilot? And the guy says, yeah. I said, okay, here's my credit card. And I was the only one that had a credit card. Gretz has only just turned 17. Peter never owned a credit card. He paid everything in cash. He sends back this, you know, the old swiper things. So he sends that back. And I look at the price and I'm going, oh, my God, it's something like seven, eight thousand dollars right find it give it back pilot gave me my copy and i looked at peter he says what are you worried about this is what do you think they'll call and check? And I says, uh, he says, I don't know why. He says, well, it's got a $500 Canadian limit on it. <laughs> so they, they ended up, we ended up landing in Minneapolis. Nothing was said. And uh, that's when the pilot came back, got his phone call or whatever. There was something, messages waiting for him. And he uh, filed a new flight plan, plan for Edmonton. That's where Wayne and got our history. And we just stayed close. I kind of took care of him in, in Edmonton, even though he was living with a family and, and gone back to high school. But uh, we had, I think, a special bond between the two of us. So uh, we became close. And uh, I can honestly say that year with Messier and uh, and Gretz. And, and then I, I think I have one of the unique maybe if not the only guy in the NHL that got to play with three Hall of Fame 18-year-olds. And that's Stevie Eisenman, which you and I played with his first year, and Messier and uh, and, 
and uh, Wayne Gretzky. So to watch these guys develop from 18 to what they became and what they are now is something that uh, is going to be a good memory for me and the rest of my life. Wow, how special. Eddie, you're sharing this with me for the first time. I didn't know any of this. I'm glad I asked you this question. So I need to do a follow-up. I, I need to do a follow-up before we end up in New York. I need to do a follow-up on Gretz. What was it like watching him in his first year? Because he's just this tiny little guy and he's playing against men. Was he out there af- afraid? Did he feel, did, did he appear afraid to you? No. Now, first of all, you got to remember, we did uh, about a month and a half in the WHA. And if you look up back in the WHA, it was uh, a rugged, fierce, competitive, lots of fights. So he wasn't afraid there. So the NHL, I mean, then we went to Edmonton. They supported him with a pretty good cast with Semenko. Driscoll was a fighter. We had Paul Schmier. He was a little. So he was protected pretty good, but he never showed fear. When he was behind the net, which was his office, as everybody knows, you know, he wasn't afraid these guys coming at him or not. And he played just like he would be with friends or with enemies or out in the pond. He played hard and he played 150%. And it just, uh, watching him in practice was, was amazing. And, you know, you always got these suspicions. Oh, yeah, big hype, nothing, right? Wasn't to the first year in our NHL, which was right away, right after Edmonton. Because we played one year in the WHA with Edmonton. And then we went to the Avco final, which was the equivalent of the Stanley Cup final against, ironically, Winnipeg Jets. And they ended up beating us. But uh, the following year was the NHL year. And to watch him now as an 18-year-old, he had just turned 18, and tie Marcel Dion for the scoring record. And the only reason they didn't give him or split it was because Marcel had one more goal than Wayne. That's why Wayne didn't get the scoring title his first year in 79-80. That whole year was really when you saw that Wayne, together with Messier and uh, Yuri Curry was on his line watching those you kind of saw after that first year NHL, dude, seeing him day in and day out on the road. Nothing, of course, he had Mr. Dave Semenko behind him, but he wasn't afraid at all. Not at all. He just enjoyed playing. He enjoyed scoring and setting setting guys up. Well, I got to witness that also because I play with him not only in the Canada Cup, but I play with him in L.A. And I saw the same thing. Now, he was a much older, more mature player back then. But I just imagine he was playing in a tough league. He's only 17, and he's probably weighed maybe 150 pounds. It wasn't like he was a strong guy. It was all skill. It was all mind. It was all talent with him. So I got to witness all that, not only playing against him, but actually playing with him. So we have that in common. What what, what what would you say to people if they were to ask you, what was he like in the dressing room? What was he like? How was he a teammate? Well, his first few years, you know, he was quiet, right? And uh, our captain was Paul Schmier. And then when Paul retired, it was Ron Chipperfield. So Gretz learned from those guys. And then when he took over, but I was traded, I was gone to New York by then. Then you saw the leadership in him come out. But I think what he does, what Wayne, to me, he observed. I mean, there wasn't a game on TV that if he was available to watch, he missed. He watched it. He was an observer. So in the locker room, he observed what was happening. Now, you got to remember, in in our year in Edmonton, we had a lot of older guys. We had Cowboy Bill Flett. We had Bobby Schmatz. We had... uh, Paul Schmier, Jimmy Nielsen. You know, we had a lot of older guys. Glenn Sather brought in a lot of older guys to kind of teach him also. More importantly, he just learned from a lot of Ace Bailey was one of his dearest friends. God bless his soul. He passed in one of the planes that hit the World Trade Center. But uh, Ace 
played with us for two years. He really kind of took Wayne also and mentored him. I think if you talk to Wayne and you had him on the show, he'll tell you how much Ace Bailey was very important in his life. A lot of the older guys, Claire Alexander, Wayne just was excited to be there and learn from these guys. So I would say what he did his first few years, he just observed, saw what it was from older guys, what he was going to have to take over when it was his time. So he, he learned. He learned a lot those few uh, young years. And he turned into being a pretty good captain. I know guys would tell me he had more dinners with the whole team at his at his place in the in the penthouse he had downtown Edmonton, and they would just those years. If anybody was ever to watch Boys on the Bus, the documentary, you'll see that team how close knit, and it was really because of Wayne Gretzky bringing everybody like Mess and Paul Coffey and uh, Kevin Lowe, bringing them all together, and that was Wayne. So his leadership skill was very very good. He brought you and all the guys together at his wedding as well. You were his best man at his wedding, Eddie. Can you take us through his wedding and I? guess that bachelor party where was the bachelor party i mean wayne gone wild would be uh, great content right now to see well you know what i got there uh, a week before wayne wanted me to come in so i got there and we were planning and i said wayne where do you want to have your uh, your bachelor party he says nah, Eddie, let's not have it and i go what we got to come on we'll make it small anyways what we did was we got all the guys we had this big party bus and basically kept it really clean i mean obviously you know you want to go to the strip bars and all that but wayne they had just won the stanley cup things were still hot and wayne didn't want anything to upset the wedding so you know that if we would have won the strip bars what do you call it there would have been people taking pictures and it would have got out so we kept it pretty clean but we did take the cup with us, and we went to almost every bar in Edmonton. It was just the just on the bus, you know. You know how many times we've been on the bus, and guys would just chirp and the funniness and and the comments. That's the kind of thing we went for about seven hours and just had more fun and ripping each other and having fun and ripping grits. So we had like a little stag on the bus, get off the bus, go to the bar, visit it, have fun. So we it was more low key than anything really crazy, but it was so much fun and the leading up to it and then in the, in the wedding and rehearsal dinners and I mean there was so many good guys there and, and you know the camaraderie of a hockey team especially after they had just won the uh, Stanley Cup was great but I gotta tell you we got in the limo on the day of the wedding so me and him just me and him and we're going on the way to the church and, and instead of talking about how fun it's going to be in the wedding and I says and I was kidding him hey still time to run we can get out of here we can take a get a flight to Vegas you know and just kidding he looked over me and looks he says you know i'm getting traded i says what he says you know i'm gonna get traded i says okay first thing kid let's get married first and then let's discuss this in a couple days he says no he says we caught them trying to uh trying to sell me to vancouver and uh, as soon as this is over i'm asking for a trade so i'm getting traded so that was the first thing we discussed in the limo and i'd been there the whole week so i guess he didn't want to disrupt that whole week of you know having fun and partying and all that but that's the first thing he said to me the morning of the wedding on our way to the church and then the whole day was it was just dudes if you were there it was it was like being at the academy awards like first of all all the everybody that stood up in the wedding paul coffee messier kevin lowe everybody uh, his brothers we all had our own car and it was a rolls royce an old vintage rolls royce and that was the procession but walking up to the wedding and, and going it was like a red carpet i mean there was thousands of people outside the church 
towards that barricade. And then obviously inside the church and the, the ceremony, then out. And then we went to, you know, taking the pictures. I mean, the whole day was fabulous. It was just unbelievable. So being best man, you know, you have to give the, the speech. We got up and got to remember, there's probably 500, 600 people at, uh, at the reception. So when I got up and I said my kind things and all that, went through the speech. And uh, right near the end, I had said, uh, okay, there's one thing Wayne and I discussed this week. He says, uh, I need to get all my keys to my uh, apartment. And beforehand, I had made 20 keys from the locksmith. I had made 20 keys and I handed them out to all these girls. One by one, these girls would come up and give me the key, come up and give me the key. The last girl, the 19th girl that came up was actually Mike Barnett's wife who was pregnant. Right. So she gave me the key. So I just said, uh, I said, OK, uh, tell me, though. I said, there's 19 here. I said, there's one more. Wayne told me there's 20 keys out there now. Please, there's got to be one more key. Please bring it up. And up comes. I had talked to Gordy Howe before the wedding and I asked him if he would mind doing it. He said, no, he'd have fun doing it. So up comes Gordy Howe with the last key and the whole crowd uh, we're talking I think Ziegler was the president at that time and Sather and all the GMs the whole crowd just burst into laughter because Gordy would come up say hello to Wayne and give Wayne the personal key so, so the whole day was fantastic I mean it was like for me always be a memory Wow Eddie uh, some of this I'm hearing for the first time now, I remember watching pictures and I know what it meant I remember I, I remember what it was like and what it meant to Cam Canada. It was like a prince and princess getting married in Canada. That's how big this thing was. And you were the best man. How special was that? So now, Eddie, I have to get you away from Edmonton right now. I have to get you away from Gretz. I'm taking you to New York. You're going to New York and you're going to be a New, New York, York Ranger. And you're, <laughs> I love and New you're York. Gonna be with, yeah, you're going to be with Barry Beck and Ron Duguay and Gretzner and Maloney. <laughs> what was that like for you? At first, when Grant Fear decided he was going to be a player, and they, they were hanging on to me for about a month, finally Glenn said, "Hey, listen, we're going to keep uh, we're going to keep Grant. What do you want to do? Because Ronnie Lowe's going to be the backup because he's older. Grant can learn from him." I, anyways, I said, "Well, can you trade me?" He didn't want to trade me. He wanted to keep me in Wichita, but he did me a favor. And when I found out, at first it was supposed to be Boston, and somehow the deal fell through. When I found out it was New York, I was a little taken aback. Not, I was a little scared. Okay, I mean, we're going to the Big Apple. Now, you got to remember, in 79, our first year with Edmonton, when we came in, and we're a bunch of guys, from young kids from out west, come in and we saw the garbage up on the streets and the home, and, you know, whatever. We were a little intimidated coming to New York. So that's when I kind of said, you know, okay, I, I've spent a couple of years going back and forth in New York, but only spending the night and then we were gone but john davidson met me at the airport right and you guys were on the road i think you were in colorado and finishing up a road trip and van briesbach was up emergency with you guys and they were sending him back after the game and you guys were coming back the very next day so it, you were either on your way or whatever because we i know we had a practice at 10 o'clock well i don't want to throw J, jd under the bus but jd kept me out a little late that night okay and we all know new york bars but we we were up in White Plains and he brought me to Francesco's and a couple other places that you guys all always went to. And uh, I kind of just looked around and I said, you know what? I'm in New York. 
And then playing that first game in Madison Square Garden, I think two days later or whatever it was, I just fell in love with New York. And now, I mean, I'm in the Big Apple. I couldn't have been happier. I mean, it was a great feeling. I, I was so comfortable. A lot of that had to do with you guys and Mickey Fatio was great. He was the first guy to come up to me in the locker room. And then, you know, you were a little intimidating because you were a little too shy. You never said a word in the locker room. You waited till outside the locker room. <laughs> and then Gresh and Barry Beck, and you know Barry's uh, sense of humor. Everybody made me comfortable. And that first day after leaving Rye, I was elated and uh, went back to the hotel. And uh, I think it was the White Plains Inn I was staying at. And not once did anybody leave me alone, right? The guys, Carol Vadney would pick me up, take me to dinner. So, it was so comfortable, the feeling that whatever I remembered from the Edmonton, my first trip in, was gone. And then when you guys took me to Il Vagabondos for the first time, now I knew I was in heaven. It was, uh, I can't express my, my love for New York. I really can't. Eddie, because we're talking Pavlich, uh, he was on our team back then because Herb Brooks ends up coming to New York and then brings Mark Pavlich, Davy Silk. And, and our show right now is about Mark Pavlich with what he's going to. What do you remember most about Pav? Well, if you remember, I, I roomed with him that first year I got there. Second year, I roomed with Barry on the road. First year, Pav never said anything. He, he never said boo. He had those earphones on constantly. And when I came into the room, I'd say, hey, Pav, guys are going to dinner. Come on. He just wouldn't say a word. He just looked at me and nodded no. And he kept his earphones on. So rooming him with him, I didn't want to say there was, he was an introvert. He just liked to be by himself and, uh, and, but what a great guy when you did get to get him to say some things, you know, but obviously even back in 81, I think there was things bothering him to the point where I, I actually asked, uh, uh, Herbie, if I could room with somebody else because that I, I'm a talker. I like, I don't want to come to my room and just sit there. And, and that's what Pav and I were all about all the time. Hardly talked hardly talked. So I can't say that I knew him that well because I couldn't get anything out of him, but you knew he was an introvert and kept things to himself. And, you know, obviously we see what the end result is. I mean, when I checked on Pav, when I was with IMG as an agent, we ran into something. I forget. I was asking one of the guys that, that played with him in the uh, Olympics, said, hey, how's Pav doing? And he says, oh, geez, we hardly talk to him. He's up in the bush. He's like a hermit, never comes out. If we need things signed, we have to go into the bush and get him to sign it and come out so you know you spend that much time bottled up something's got to give uh i don't know what you remember from him and that's what i remember that he kept a lot of things just bottled up and uh, i don't know if it was this created it but then when you don't talk to people and you're i think he spent 10 to 12 years maybe longer in in northern uh, minnesota i mean duluth so i think that's got to play on you don't you i mean you look at you just can't go that crazy with which he just did and beat up one of his friends because he thinks he spiked his beer i mean that's out there duke that's out there and i all i remember about pav he was a great guy i mean he never never said anything never said anything bad he just just never said anything really you know it's sad to, to see what's what he's going through and reading about what the judge committed him to. A, I don't want to say an insane society, but basically that. And you've spoken with Barry Beck about uh, Pavlich? Yeah, we were, uh, you know, we were FaceTime, not FaceTiming, but uh, Messenger, because he obviously he's in Hong Kong. Barry was taking this thing that he thought it had something to do with hockey and the fact that a lot of us, when we retire or we're forced out of the game or whatever you want to call it, we're not playing anymore, that we should be taken care of a little bit better by the NHL itself. And he thinks that his depression 
because no one really spotted it and helped them out and had something to do with it. And we just talked about a little bit of that. And Barry wanted to, to take on the, I don't want to say he wanted to take on the NHL. He was going to, he was kind of going to make a push to the NHL, which I agreed with and said, yeah, Barry, anything you can do, because I'm going to tell you, I, I think you've heard about the Joe Murphy thing too, right? Yes. Joe Murphy's yeah. on the streets and he's not, and he refused help. But I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of us more than we thing that is going through what Pat's going through. So I think Barry had a pretty good, you know, how you go about it, I don't know. Maybe with Glenn Healy, he should talk to Glenn. Glenn's doing a good job for our alumni association, meaning the NHL. But uh, Barry was just very, very concerned because remember, him and him and Pat got along pretty good back then too. So, so he just thought it was the way that retired players that are down on their luck are treated that might have had something to do with Pat. You know, that's, that's all we kind of discussed. And, and about well, like I said, there's a lot more Pavs out there. We just don't know about them. Now, have they gone to this, what Pav did, and beat somebody up? I'm not sure. I don't think so. But there's a lot of guys in bad shape out there. So I think that's what Barry and I, and uh, he was trying to get at, saying there should be something. We should be doing something and and, uh, and taking care of our own, which we all, I think you and I have had that discussion over a few beers at, uh, at Clark Gillies tournament, how NHL could be a little bit more active in following up on guys and making sure they're okay. On a more positive note, before we wrap up and appreciate all the time, Eddie, it's been great hearing these stories and that Gretzky story is great because I the story when I read up on it after you said that it was you know he got notified while he was on his honeymoon that he got traded, but you're saying it was right before he went on stage for his wedding that he kind of found out, but the, he I guess he didn't know that he was going to the Kings, but he knew he was going to get traded right before the wedding. He just knew that something was up and that the the way he put it that Edmonton has kind of went behind his back and didn't treat him with the respect so there was going to be a trade so what I think he was getting at was he's going to demand the trade now but he's going to let Edmonton trade but where he wants to go and I think there was Detroit, LA there was a couple teams that he had specified I think maybe Toronto that where he would go so the whole thing with, with that too is everybody wanted to blame Janet Janet had nothing to do with his decision to go to LA Bruce McDonald made him a pretty good offer and uh, the fact to bring to hopefully make LA a good hotspot for hockey was also on his mind and look what he did for it he opened it up there so I think LA was a great decision for him and it wasn't because of Janet you know just because Janet lived there she would have lived in Edmonton she would have went anywhere obviously he's working for Edmonton right now and he's got to spend time and Janet goes with him and so it doesn't seem to mind so yeah it got to a point where uh, he just didn't feel comfortable with Edmonton anymore and you know trusting Parkington anymore put it that way so so yeah he knew right after the honeymoon he was he was going to make a decision where to go and before we go we have to hear some memories you were Ron's wingman at Studio 54 and back in the (laughs) 80s so we know you got a, a few stories of uh you know partying with Ron a little bit yeah now you know what I don't think Ronnie ever needed a wingman but I can tell you a few couple stories that studio was a fun fun time and I I, I saw the podcast with uh, with Greshner Maloney and, and Ronnie with Tom Laidlaw and Dukes mentioned a little bit about that but he never mentioned that I was his wingman that I did all his talking for him and I'll give you an example when we went to see Farrah Fawcett burning bed off Broadway he had called me the day before and he had said he said Eddie he says we're going to go to a play and I says no we're not Dukes you're going to a play he says no 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 you got to come I says what do you mean he says 
going to see Sarah Fawcett, and then we're going to uh, go see her in her dressing room, go to dinner. I said, okay, you got me. So we go in the dressing room. I'm doing all the talking. Dukes isn't doing anything, okay? Next thing I know, she goes to change, and Dukes gives me the wink. I go, what? Okay, you can go now. I go, what? <laughs> you can go now. Says, you son of a gun. So I take off. Now, we're not going to keep getting in this, but this happened two more times. One with Bianca Jagger when we were up in her penthouse, okay? And uh, he calls me up again. He says, come on, we're going to dinner. So I thought, we're going somewhere. He says, yeah, we're going to Bianca Jagger's place. So I figured it was like a little dinner party, right? So we get there. There's Bianca, Dukes, and me, okay? And a butler. That's it. So we sit down for dinner. And again, you, you see some of those movies that uh, you got the, the, the rich family and the father's at one end, the mother's at the other, and the kids are like in the middle, but it's a huge table that you have to yell for people to uh, to hear you. Well, that was us. Duke was on one end, Bianca on the other, and me in the middle, and I'm doing all the talking with Bianca. So again, Bianca gets up, goes to the kitchen, and Dukes gives me the wink. He gives me the wink again. I go, no, Dukes, not. He says, go. Well, at that time, I didn't mind because there's only the three of us. And by the way, Bianca was divorced, so she was single. So dudes wasn't messing around. So this happened one more time, and I don't need to get it, but the same story. I do all the talking, and when it's time to, you know, relax and enjoy, I get the wink from dudes with Morgan Fairchild. So the list can go on, but we'll leave it right there. We'll stop right there. But I got to tell you, I got great memories with dudes and the things we used to do. I mean, we can't talk about all of them. We had some fun in, in, uh, in New York. I, I guess that's why I got traded with Dukes. Her Brooks wanted us both out of the page six scene. So so Dukes got me traded from the city that I loved, that we were we were going for a Stanley Cup because the two years I was there, we took the Islanders to six games and almost beat them, didn't have enough, to a team that hadn't made the playoffs in 17 years. So you know where my career was going. But fortunately for Dukes and I, and, and Dukes mentioned on the podcast, Detroit was good for us. We made the playoffs two years in a row, and the first time that's happened in 17 years and we got to play with a phenomenal kid named Steve Eisenman so so things you know hockey has taken me down a lot of highs and lows but there's more highs and the people you meet playing professional hockey and like we just mentioned we got Messi, Gretzky, Dukes and Barry and you name it they are great people and they're friends for life so I can't blame Dukes for getting me traded at all it was it was closer to home so but we had we had fun the three years here in Detroit too so it was all it was good memories but like I said studio not only studio remember the Red Parrot Dukes and uh, Shea Paris not not Shea Paris but uh, Visage there was a lot of other places that were taking over from studio uh, when I got there studio was kind of like going a little downhill but we had tremendous fun but I can still say Dukes Il Vagabondo on Monday night was still our most fun place don't you admit? Yeah well it all started there well like I told the story on Monday nights it backed up to going to a massage a Korean massage it's called Madison Avenue. Yeah, Madison Avenue. We started there and then Il Vagabondo, then studio. So that was a Monday night. Anyways, Eddie, you know how you've said you like to talk? Well, this is my longest podcast so far. So we're going to have to end it here. Okay, we're going to have to end it here. And you mentioned Barry Beck. You mentioned Barry Beck. I'll probably have him on the show next week. But such great insight. I'm so glad you came on because you've you've shared things with me that I have never heard before. And I'm sure our listeners have not heard before. And so thank you very much we'll have you back on the show to finish some of your stories all right my friend no problem my friend you guys be safe and uh, take care
That's a wrap for episode 22 of Up in the Blue Seats. Thanks to our producer, Jake Brown, for producing the show. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen. If you're using Apple Podcasts, rate us five stars and write a nice review, please. And make sure to follow me on Twitter at RonDuguay10. Thanks for joining us. Stay safe, everybody. Chat with you all next week. <laughs>